As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to My Favorite Work of Art with me, Dr. Laura Jane Foley. Each week, I'm joined in the studio by a guest who tells me all about an artwork that means something to them. Today, my guest is the theatre director and writer Stephen Unwin. Stephen read English at Cambridge University and as a student directed an award-winning production of Measure for Measure, which transferred to London's Almeida Theatre. For much of the 1980s, he was associate director at the Traverse Theatre in Edinburgh, in the early 90s, he was resident director at the National Theatre Studio in London. He founded the English Touring Theatre in 1993 and he opened the Rose Theatre in Kingston in 2008, where he served as artistic director until 2014. Stephen has written eight books on theatre and drama and he is also the author of four original plays. Stephen is chair of KIDS, a national charity which provides a wide range of services to disabled young people and their families. He lives in London and he has three children. I'm delighted he's joining me today. Welcome, Stephen. Hello. Hello. So tell me, what is your favourite work of art? So I plumped for two works of art by the same artist. OK. And they are the Baptism of Christ, which is in the National Gallery, and the Resurrection, which is uh, on a wall in San Sepulcro in Italy. Okay, and just just for the benefit of our listeners, Mm. um, the resurrection, uh, we've got reproductions here, so the resurrection is an image of Christ uh, staring straight ahead with uh, one leg raised upon a tomb. We presumably, mere moments after the resurrection, and beneath him are four soldiers who are asleep. Yeah. and the baptism of Christ is similarly Christ in the centre of the image uh, being baptised by John the Baptist. That's correct. Uh, In both of them, there are things that connect these two paintings. In both of them, Christ is in the middle staring out at us uh, and all the other figures are caught within the, the plane of the painting. 
And in both paintings, Christ is absolutely in the middle in the most kind of obvious, perfect, dominant position in the painting. One of the things that I love about these, both these paintings, well, there's so many things I love about them, but that there is a, there is a formal control and counterpoint between the figure looking out at you and all the figures who are caught up in the, in the individual moment of, of the drama. And you can draw through this, as I used to do as a kind of eager 17-year-old, you could draw through these paintings extraordinary lines of construction. Uh, and it's almost mathematical in its... Uh, they're both almost mathematical in their, in their power and in their, their control, sort of in, almost in their objectivity. And I'm very, very struck by that. Um, I think it's interesting, an art historical point, in that Piero della Francesca was uh, known for his writings on mathematics and geometry and perspective. Yeah. So I think very clearly in those uh, two paintings, there is a sort of marriage of um, art and science, in a sense. Yeah. Um, I mean, is that your background? Have you got uh, a sort of mathematical or scientific background as well? Is that an interest as a, as a child? No, I don't think it is mathematics. I mean... What's strange for me is I was brought up in Catholicism and I am now an absolute devout atheist. And these paintings, uh, in an interesting way, combine both a sense of the mysterious and, if you like, the divine, with an absolute secularism, <laughs> which I think is one of the characteristics of the best Christian art, is that there's this kind of connection between the divine and the earth and the earthly. And I think that that, in a funny kind of way, speaks very deeply to me and has as, as informed most of my work ever since, that both are caught there, I find very, very striking. In terms of the mathematics, I, I, I love the, the sense of objectivity. Um, there's a phrase that's used about Chekhov, who's one of my favourite playwrights, which is objectivity and commitment, that it both stands for something and like a like like a like a doctor, if you imagine the doctor who can analyze what is wrong with the body with great objectivity, but then has this passionate commitment to making the person better, you can't just be objective, but nor can you just be passionate. You have to have both. It seems to be in life, and I think that these, I think these paintings express that with extraordinary power. They're both deeply symbolic. Um, in the resurrection, we, um, on the left-hand side of Jesus, we see barren trees, yeah. um, dead trees in a sense, and then on the yeah. on the right-hand side, they are lush and full of life. And yeah. I mean, deeply symbolic of, of yeah. renewal and of yeah. resurrection. Yeah, um, and then when you look at the the soldiers asleep, they are. Very, very individualized portraits, presumably, of Piero's contemporaries. And in fact, I think people feel that the sleeper uh, on Christ, uh, the, 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 the one who's the second to the, to the, from, the, from the left, if you're looking at the painting, I think people say that that is a, a self-portrait of Piero. Mm. Also, but, I think what's interesting there and leads into a little bit about your career is that there are actually not enough legs 
So <laughs> there are only three, three, there are four soldiers, but only three sets of legs. And, and I think that's quite interesting because he's, he's not chosen not to, to pick the legs in order to have a nice composition. So as a theatre director, you must make similar sort of <laughs> tricks in, in, in the well, career that you have. As a theatre director, one of the things you're doing is you're, you're organising figures in space so that it tells a story and that it catches your uh, your imagination but also that the the viewer's eye is guided to what you want them to look at not what you don't want them to look at and there are a lot of ways of doing that um what these paintings do though is that what's brilliant is your eye goes back to christ staring out at you but then it keeps going back to humankind to ordinary people uh, so that there's this brilliant tension is that it's not just about the dominant figure, although the dominant figure obviously is very dominant. It's this relationship between the dominant figure and the rest and, and the rest of mankind, humankind, which then extends beyond the 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 the, the, the frame of the painting out to the uh, to us to the to the audience. And it seems to me that in the theatre, in the theatre, the word is made flesh, is made material which is also the case in the very best of Catholic art and Catholic belief, as I understand it. Um, and these paintings seem to, to, to manifest that. Um, if, you, if you looked at the resurrection and took away the soldiers and just had the risen Christ, it wouldn't be half as powerful. And I think the, the, the sort of point is that the risen Christ has an impact on these guys who are asleep. <laughs> And of course, these guys who are asleep on who are who who don't witness this great event. Mm. Talking about my work, I mean, I'm writing a big book at the moment, which I've been writing for years about the um, the 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 working class, the soldiers, and the and all the other kind of ordinary folk in Shakespeare. And there's a brilliant thing, which is there's a slave in Julius Caesar called Lucius, who's Brutus's slave, and he keeps being asleep <laughs> and he keeps missing. He misses the uh, appearance of the ghost of uh, Julius Caesar at the Battle of Philippi because he's asleep. He misses uh, the conspiracy because he's asleep. And it's a kind of, um, in a funny kind of way, I think what, what, what Piero is doing is he's saying, you know, and Shakespeare in a way, is saying all of us, we're all asleep and we're missing mm. The thing that matters, and I sound like I'm like I'm a religious person. I'm not at all a religious person, but I'm I'm very drawn to that brilliant human um, human empathy, human understanding of everyday life mm. that these paintings seem to seem to catch. So that they're they're sort of caught somewhere between divine inspiration, whatever that is, and scientific naturalism. <laughs> And there's somewhere in that huge uh, evolution in human in human thought, um, which of course is 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 the great Renaissance moment, which ha which has both of those, and which you can see in Shakespeare, and you can see in 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 the greatest of Renaissance art, I think. Um, but what you were saying about the the fact that the soldiers are sleeping while the resurrection is is going on reminds me of the um, Auden poem. Musée de Beaux-Arts. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, about yeah. suffering, they yeah. were never wrong, the old masters. That yeah. sense that, yeah. you know, life goes on and, and the minutiae of people's life goes on whilst these big events 
are taking place. That's absolutely crucial. I mean, the... Um yeah, the Auden poem about the, the Bruegel painting where you see the fall of Icarus, you see the fall of Icarus and you see the guy still ploughing the fields. Mm. Um, and that that sense of dramatic counterpoint informs a lot of my work, both my writing work and my directing work, because you say, well, the play is the play's called Hamlet and Hamlet matters. But you can only really understand Hamlet if you also understand the gravedigger. And what's really happening is in relation is is the two of them in relationship to each other, uh, because we all live in we live in society. We live we're connected to each other, um, and I think that's something that these 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 great paintings do. Um, just about the 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 material every day of this stuff. So you know, you, you you rightly pointed out that the background of the painting of the resurrection is symbolic of of from you know the winter into the spring, from death into life, and all those things which you would associate with the resurrection. But I think it's also a, a, a landscape outside of San Sepulcro. Mm. <laughs> this yeah. painting is in the town hall of San Sepulcro, which of course is the Holy Sepulchre. So it's of course the right painting mm. to be in the town hall of San Sepulcro. Um, and uh, the you know these soldiers are not wearing um, Roman soldier outfits. They're wearing re- they're they're dressed as 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 fourteenth century, fifteenth century Italian Italian soldiers. Um, and then if you look at the re- if you look at the baptism, there's a fascinating thing. San Sepolcro, which is where Piero came from, the Tiber flows through San Sepolcro, the great classical river. And of course, this painting of the baptism. You see the River Jordan, but the River Jordan is also the Tiber. <laughs> so that what he's doing is he's sort of saying uh, he's making it uh, no, not just Italian, but of, of course neoclassical mm. by, 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 by making it, by, by painting his local environment. I mean, this fantastic tree that you see which I'm sure is the, is, is the symbol of new life and all the rest of it, and, of course, is the tree, the cross that he'll be crucified on, um, is also, I will bet you, a portrait of a tree near San Sepulcro. Um, and you, in, in the baptism, you see, you know, there's Christ staring forward, you know, with the dove hovering above, and, the, and you can very brilliantly, the focal point, the absolute maximum focus place in the whole painting and all the lines of connection do it is his forehead where the water is dripping onto his forehead but in the background you see a guy taking his shirt off who's also being baptized or also just about to go for a swim you can't really tell exactly what's happening um not all the angels are looking at christ one is looking away um so that again you have this this brilliant counterpointing going on which is what I mean by objectivity, by like like like, like the Auden poem, um, like like any great play says this is important, but look, this is also important. Look over here, look on the other side of what's happening, um, and then you start to understand how the world is made because it's made up of contradiction and paradox, not out of simplicity. Um, I mean, I think Shakespeare, like like the Greeks, like these paintings, constructs on a paradoxical principle all the time. It's always a set of opposites, um, uh, and I think this this does the same thing. 
And yet, like I was saying about Chekhov, it's got commitment to it. You know, there is a really, you can sense a very powerful sense of religious belief. But the religious belief by itself doesn't mean anything if, it, if you don't see how it affects ordinary life, if you don't see its impact in, in the day-to-day, in the quotidian, in the, in the, in the material. Um, so it's not, it's, it's not an abstraction. Can um, you remember the first time you saw the paintings? Well, I think I saw these paintings when... I remember we went, we went to Italy when I was about 14, and I think that's when I first saw the resurrection. And I must have first seen the, the, the baptism when I was about 11. So I've kind of lived these paintings all my life. There's a funny thing is that before I decided to become a theatre director and, and, you know, you mentioned going to Cambridge and everything, before I decided to do that, I wanted to be a painter. And in a funny kind of way, these, these paintings and a few others spoke to me in a, in a way that I don't really understand why they spoke so deeply, but they did. Um, and I wanted to be a painter, and this stuff was my... I wanted to be a figurative painter, and this stuff was my, in some ways, a very deep inspiration for me. I was right not to be a painter because I, I, you know, I don't have... That's not, if I have any talent, it's not that. Um, but for some reason, this stuff got, went very, very deep in me. Um, the quality of light is very peculiar in, in, in Pierre. You don't know where the sun is, but the whole thing seems to be just glowing with this strange, delicate, milky light. And it couldn't be further away from the cliché of Italian Renaissance painting, which is all its dark and gloomy and and and, you know... Caravaggio-esque. It's 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 airy and it's fresh and it's light and it's it's um it's kind of lit up. The figures seem to be lit up from inside in some some peculiar way, which I find very very appealing. Um, it it is strange for me sitting here going, I love these paintings when I am a defiant atheist, and they are f- fantastically religious paintings. Um. And I do sometimes think that you can't understand religious art, you can't understand Matthew Passion unless you sort of have some sense of belief. So I'm a bit... I, I get worried that I'm being a hypocrite in loving this stuff so much or, or being inconsistent or contradictory, but maybe that's the paradoxical principle. And um, there's a, an interesting story, isn't there, about the painting in the Second World War? Um, in 1944... Uh, the Germans were in San Sepulcro and the British army was going up Italy, the Americans on the other side. And there's a story about a guy who was a British tank commander and he got the order to, to, to shell San Sepulcro. He was on, in his tanks up on the hill overlooking to shell it to get the Germans to leave. And he had in his head, because he, he was an educated guy, he had in his head this thing that... Aldous Huxley had written about, which said the greatest painting in the world. And he went, I, I know they were the greatest painting in the world, and some for some reason I know San Sepulcro, I know the name of San Sepulcro. But he didn't really put two and two together. But he just had an instinct, and he the Germans actually by then had, had abandoned the town. And he didn't, he, and they'd done a little bit of shelling, but they stopped shelling. And he just said, let's not do any more shelling, let's just leave it. And then the Germans left. And then he drove in with his tank, and then some Italian boy 
took him to the resurrection. And he realised that he had saved the greatest painting in the world. Or he had stopped the greatest painting in the world being destroyed. Because it is painted on a wall. Mm. And if that building was bombed, you know, was shelled, it would have been over. Uh, what a fantastic story. Uh, thanks so much for coming in, Stephen. Oh, you're welcome. It was lovely. Today we were talking about two paintings by the 15th century Italian painter Piero della Francesca. The Baptism of Christ, which is on display at the National Gallery in London, and The Resurrection, a fresco which remains in its original location in San Sepolcro in Italy. Piero della Francesca was born around 1415 and died in 1492. According to Giorgio Vasari's Lives, the 16th century series of artist biographies, Piero was also known as a mathematician and wrote three works which discussed perspective, algebra and geometry. Art historians believe that the meditative nature of his works are enhanced by his geometrical precision. In 1925, the writer Aldous Huxley described the resurrection as the greatest picture in the world. If you would like to see the artworks we were discussing this week, or carry on the conversation further, you can find me on Twitter, at Laura Jane Foley. And if you want to discuss the show, please use the hashtag MyFavouriteWorkOfArt. The show was recorded at Wise Budda and was edited by John Last. The title music is Blue, from Colours, by Dimitri Scarlatto. I hope you'll be able to join me next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.